How about that youth band, huh? Pretty great. If you have a Bible with you, would you go to uh, Romans chapter 13? Maybe you're watching online. Welcome if you are, or in the auditorium, maybe you don't have a Bible with you. You might have it on your phone as an app. Um, if you don't own a Bible, there's free Bibles in the back. You can pick one up on your way out if you would like to. would love for you to have a copy of God's Word, Romans 13. I'd like to pray with you before we step into this. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for every adult, every student, every child who's gathered in this moment, whether they're watching online or in the auditorium right now. We pray that your word would penetrate. I thank you for the way that the, the songs were used to prepare our heart. We've declared truth. There is no other name that has the power to save, and that's why we're here. But we want to know more. We want to know more about who we are to you and, and the reality of the things that you called us to, how we can actually walk out this belief in the midst of our week. So I pray for every adult, every student, every child that you would really impact our lives today to the degree that there is measurable change in us, that we can look back and say, I'm different than I was a week ago. I'm looking more like Christ. That's our goal, Father. You told us to press on towards the high calling of Christ. And we know that we do that not to be more saved, but because of the love we have for the one who saved us. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you dialed 911 and no one answered, what would you do? If it rang and rang and rang and rang, if you dialed 911 and no one picked up and said, 911, how may I help you? Or what is your emergency? What if you had a fire and there's no firemen to respond? What if you had a family member who's being crushed with illness or injury and there's no rescue vehicle coming to pick them up? Imagine gangs and anarchy in the streets and that's what's roaming and no one answers 911. And you're thinking, well, if I had my CPL, I could take care of myself. That won't put out your fire. And that won't rescue the loved one who's dying. So what do you do when everyone's doing as they see fit in their own eyes? Scripture said there was a period of time like that here on planet Earth when everyone was doing as they saw fit in their own eyes. What kind of a tidal wave would sweep across this planet if there were no civil authorities to hold restraint with that picture in your mind, read Romans 13.4. You see it up on the screen or you can look in your own Bible, but this is what we looked at last week. He, it's referring to the civil authority. He, God says, the civil authority is for your good. So we're supposed to be giving thanks that this is not one huge bowl of chaos around us. Satan brings chaos. God brings order. Satan brings lawlessness. God brings law. So authority and structure comes from God. So last week we talked about the reality that authority is a gift of common grace from God. He, God says it's for your good. 
And so we discussed the really hard reality, the hard part of our, our nature is to rebel against authority. And I, I use the illustration of myself wanting to blow through one-way signs. And, and that's one reality of it. We want to push back against authority. But there's also this tension part. What about the tension when there's poor authorities in charge? What about when it's your guy or your gal that's been not elected and someone else has been put in office? What about when your agenda is not being accomplished? What then? And we talked about the reality of what's the fine line? Where do you go? When do you protest? When do you not protest? We recognize we live in a democracy. You'd be amazed at the amount of conversations I had this week with individuals who reminded me. But I am the authority because I vote. I vote people into power and I vote them out. Well, in truth... That, that's a reality. We live in a democracy, but God says, I'm the one who raises up and I'm the one who puts down. So first of all, we recognize that God guides all the circumstances to put authorities in power and take authorities out of power, even the ones who are as wicked as Pilate. And so we closed last week with the reality of Jesus talking to Pilate, that he said to Pilate, you may crucify me, but no authority comes to you unless it comes from my father first. Even Jesus recognized that authority comes from God. So secondly, what we recognized last week is it comes down to a heart issue. Where's my heart on this issue of submission to authority? Paul's writing here in Romans 13 that believers in Jesus Christ are compelled to submission. And I used that word hupotasso last week. You might remember that. That's really talking about a military structure of an individual who's submitting to the authority above them. And they do it willingly. Submitting because the authority has been put in place by a higher power. So now Paul moves into what seems really banal. He moves into this application of taxes. And he says, part of what it means to submit is to pay taxes. And immediately your mind goes, oh, could anything be more boring than that? When he says, even those who collect taxes are servants of God. And I asked you last week, did you ever think of your IRS guy as being a minister of God? But yet scripture refers to him exactly that way. Uh, we recognize no one enjoys paying taxes, right? When I was a teenager, I got my first job. I'm, I was working at a senior retirement center. Um, it was called nursing homes in those days. I don't know if they still are, but at that period of time, I got a job. I was working in the kitchen, washing dishes, and I got my first paycheck. And I brought it home. I didn't even open the envelope. I waited until I got home to show my parents. And, uh, and I opened up the paycheck, and I looked at it, and I was shocked at how small it was. And then I saw this guy named Fica down on the bottom. And I said to my dad, who's FICA and why is he getting all my money? Maybe you had a similar experience when you looked at your first paycheck. And you realize the government has a claim on that and you pay the taxes whether you want to or not. So Paul's moving into this application of what it means to submit is paying taxes. And it's obvious all taxes are not used for just purposes. Many taxes are used for governments that are not just and money is unjustly spent. And it seems like such a waste. Let me give you some context in which he's writing this. Rome is in control. And Rome is a pagan government. And they're taking taxes and they're using it for all manner of ungodly things. And the Caesars, they declare themselves to be gods. And they demand people to worship them as gods. It might surprise you to learn that during the later years of the Roman government, it actually descended into a complete welfare state. 
Individuals were unwilling to work, and those who did work had to work extra hard to pay even higher taxes to take care of the people who were either unwilling or unable to work. It sounds familiar. Like We know that environment. Well, it was far, far worse here. And part of the Roman taxes, they went to an ungodly pagan temple worship in which they endorsed from the government male and female prostitution, and they called it worship. And yet the book of Romans makes no exception in those cases. That's the backdrop for verse 6 as we come through verse chapter 13 again. Look with me on the screen. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. What very thing, Paul? Well, for because of this, it's referring to the first five verses that we looked at. That all authority comes from God. God has put the structure in place. And he says part of the structure is you've got an obligation to pay taxes. Now, out of all the activities that Paul could have used to illustrate this point, why taxes? Why go there? When young men and young women are being hauled away and forced into military service in Rome, when people are being compelled into slavery, why use taxes, Paul? Why go there? Well, this is not unique to Paul. He's actually picking up on something that Jesus was challenged on. Years earlier, people confronted Jesus and said, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Do you compel us to do that, Jesus? You know the conversation, if you've read it before, Jesus actually told them to bring him a coin, and he said, whose picture is on the coin? And they said, Caesar, and he said, well, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and unto God the things that are God. That'll come back up in just a minute. So 20 years later... Paul's addressing the exact same question. And maybe there was some misunderstanding in the church. Maybe there's some confusion. They didn't know the things that Jesus had said. And so we come back to the same issue again in Romans 13. And we ask ourselves the question, should we, living in 2019, submit to a Christ-denying secular government that's abusing money? And the Bible says the answer is yes, even if money is being wasted. Does that include even evil government? Come on, Paul, they're killing Christians. Well, nobody knew this better than Paul. He's watching his friends be thrown to the lions. He himself is going to be hung from chains in the Mamertine prison only a few years after writing this letter. He knows what it looks like to have a tyrannical government in power. Well, last week we saw the reality that man did not create government. It's God's structure, and so therefore man does not sustain it. God says, I raise up and I put down. So man doesn't sustain government. God does. It's his idea. So authority is God's idea, and Satan does this. Satan compels us with our rebel spirit to push back against the restraints. God says, no, the restraints are there for your good. They're there for a a good reason. Satan says, take off the restraints. God says, no, keep them in place. Even though rulers can be despotic, even though they can be destructive, even though they can kill, and yes, they tax, civil authority is God's instrument given over to us for our good. Let me reach back to last week from 1 Peter. Peter wrote this exact same issue, wrote about it, 1 Peter 2.13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to the governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, hard part in verse 17, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, even if his name is Caesar Augustus. 
And so we remember that rulers are not God. God is God. Amen, New Hope? Rulers are not God. God is God, and God is on his throne. And so when you submit, you submit for God's sake out of reverence for God. In other words, keeping the speed limit is worship. Check your heart on that. It makes you go, <gasps> what? Keeping the speed limit is worship. Getting rid of your radar detectors is worship. Getting that dog permit, getting that building permit. I got a note back from somebody who was at the Saturday night service. <laughs> it came in the email this morning. And he said, I just want you to know on my way home last night, I made a full and complete stop at the red light. You would be, if I was a Catholic priest, you'd be amazed at the confessions I heard this week. <laughs> Let me just tell you what I did. Well, we all identify with that rebel spirit. We all want to blow through that one-way sign. We all want to save our schedule. But we read verse 6, and it says, for rulers are servants of God. This word servants is not the exact same word that's used all the time in the New Testament for servants. Typically, it's, it's the word doulos which is a common servant, a common slave in the household. And believers are called servants of God, called doulos, a common worker. But this particular term here, you see it in your notes this morning, it's liturgos, and it's speaking specifically of a public servant, a functionary, a minister. Do you know somebody in law enforcement this morning? Scripture calls them a minister. Not in the way that the world thinks of a minister, but... Do you know a drain commissioner? Do you know someone who's a first responder, a fireman? Scripture refers to them as a minister, a servant of God. So Paul's writing, believers carry out this tax obligation because those who levy the taxes are servants of God. How in the world did Paul mean for us to understand this? Well, in this sense, all authority comes from God, verse 1. There's no authority exists that doesn't come from God because he guides them all in place. So God grants authority, and those authorities maintain order. Therefore, they're ministers of God because they maintain order in society. Yet, what about when it's unreasonable? What about when it's unjust? It's, it's never been this bad, we think, in our mind. We, we could look around at our environment and say, but there's so much unrest. It can't be of God. Let me remind you that Jesus was born into an incredibly tyrannical system where political corruption was rampant. And murderous rulers were common. They were everywhere. Let me take you back to the Christmas story. King Herod rules over Samaria, Judea. He is a tyrannical ruler. And he carries out whatever he wants to carry out. And Caesar, apparently, isn't keeping him in check. Matthew 2, 16 when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its environs from two years old and under. Can you imagine living in a time when the government kills babies? So the king sends his soldiers out while people are sleeping and they kick down the doors and while mom and dad are startled awake to find a soldier in their house with a sword wiping out their child. And these were unchallenged norms. It was a brutal time to live. 
And during that time, taxes are astronomical. And the government approved extortion by tax collectors. And this is the, the world that Paul's writing from. And the common cry of the government is perhaps a cry that you know today. The common cry was, the government's taking all my money. Who's FICA and why does he get so much of my paycheck, Dad? Well, once again, Jesus reorients us and he sets a pattern. I'll see if you agree with this. Um, I'm, I'm sure you do. It's a fairly redundant question. Jesus is the Son of God, correct? So as, as the Son of God, does God have an obligation to pay taxes to a human institution? No. But does the Son of Man have an obligation? God the Son, no way, He's God. Why would He pay taxes? But God the Son becomes Jesus the Man, and as Jesus the Man... He has this conversation that you're about to see from Matthew 22. Watch with me on the screen. Verse 16, they sent their disciples to him, and this is the Pharisees, by the way. The Pharisees sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And you want to go gag me? Because these guys didn't respect Jesus, they didn't honor Jesus, they didn't revere him as an authority. They're trying to trick him. They want to trick him and they use taxes as a conversation point to strip up his language to get him to say something he shouldn't say, to speak against Caesar. But watch his intelligence, verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Have you ever said that to somebody? To their face? Jesus is willing to do that. Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. An incredibly explicit statement that as earth dwellers, God the Son becomes Jesus the man. Jesus the man is paying the tax in honor of the authority, he's saying paying tax is an obligation, that Rome is pagan, that it's unjust, that Caesar's face is on the dollar bill, and Caesar at this time, by the way, is Caesar Augustus, and Caesar Augustus declared himself to his entire empire as the son of God. So when you worship me, you worship me as the son of God, bow down. Even though he declared those things, Jesus says that doesn't change the obligation. Why such a mundane topic, though, Paul? Where is this headed? Watch, he's not about to drop the hammer, but he's getting there. Go with me to the next verse, verse 7. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So Paul's writing, pay what's due to everybody that you owe, and he uses the word render, which is the exact same word that Jesus used, apodidomai, this Greek word that's in your notes, to give something back. What to give it back means it must have belonged to that person in the first place. To render again to them, it carries the idea of paying back something you owed. Wait, I thought the taxes were mine. I thought that was my money. He's moving away from the tax issue, this very banal conversation. 
And he's transitioning to the issue of respect. Uh, we just saw in First Peter that Peter said, fear God, honor the king, even if the king is Caesar. Well, I thought respect is something that's earned. Why would I respect someone who's undeserving of my respect? Well, Paul would say back to you, fearing God is absolutely correct. That's, that's right. But he's going on the heart attitude here. He's saying this. Christians respect those who are in high places, not for secular reason, not because they have a lot of money and not because they have a lot of power, but rather because God put them in place and God gave them value and he actually caused them his ministers. So Paul says, just echoing that, render fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor. And honor is actually the word time, and it means esteem. So in the Greek language, the, the word time it's actually talking about something that's not fake. So those guys who came to Jesus and said, we know that you don't respect anyone's opinion, Jesus. Tell us, should we pay Caesar or not? And I said, gag me, because there was no respect. There was no honor there. They didn't esteem him. God's saying, you've got to esteem these individuals. What is God pushing toward here? Go with me to the next verse, verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So from this attitude towards all authority, he turns towards people in general. Let me rabbit trail with you for just a minute. I'm not sure it's a rabbit trail if I tell you it's a rabbit trail, but we'll go with that. Many individuals have misread this verse over the years when it says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. And they read into it and think that's forbidding borrowing. This has a link. I'm going to explain the link for you in just a minute. It, it's, it's, there's circumstances arise in everyone's life in which agreed upon debt is permissible. It's not saying you can't ever borrow money. The terms may not always be in your favor, and it's certainly not unscriptural. You just got to be careful with what you're doing when you borrow. Jesus permitted debt. They may surprise some of you, but I'll, I'll show you that in just a minute. Neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament forbids borrowing, so that can't be what Paul's talking about. Exodus twenty two twenty five: if you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you're not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. So it's obvious borrowing and lending was taking place in the Old Testament. It just had to be managed very, very well. The moral issue involved individuals who were loaning money out like loan sharks and charging huge interest on top of the loan. And putting people in a cumbersome place, both the Old Testament and the New Testament justify borrowing when there's no recourse. Jesus speaks this way, Matthew 5, 42, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Improperly managed debt is the problem, but that's not what Paul's going for here. Paul's writing with biblical force and he's saying, believers do not leave something unpaid you got to settle as they agreed according to the terms they agreed to. So there's this present imperative in the Greek language. Don't continue borrowing. Don't keep on being in debt. Now, off the rabbit trail and coming back again. We just said we got to pay what we owe to the government. And then we said we pay what we owe in our daily life, in our private life, according to what he's writing here. And then he moves beyond that to a debt that will never be cleared from your balance sheet, the debt of love. That one's never going to be wiped out. At first glance, you think, well, this is a really radical transition. How does he get from honoring authorities who are in power and the police officers to getting to never having this debt of love? 
removed. This is what he's saying. There's a debt we constantly pay against. We may pay our taxes. This was tax week this last week. People who own real estate know that the government expected payment by the 14th of February. So that, that gets to a place where we write a check out, we sign our name and say, glad that's over. Well, at least for a time. We may give respect and honor where they're due. Glad I got that done. No further obligation there. We may do a really good job with our personal finances and take care of all of our obligations. But I can never, ever, ever get to the point where I can say, I have done all the loving I need to do. Nailed it. It's not true according to the Bible. Especially not true for believers in Christ. I I can't go there. We pay that debt, yet we always owe on the balance. It never diminishes. Look again at verse 8. Owe nothing except to love one another. Now, some people have misinterpreted that and think that only belongs to believers, that that's the way Christians love Christians. We're, We're talking about believers in Christ, but it's really difficult to hold that view. And I want you to think about that person in your life whom you may not get along with right now someone who may not be a believer in Christ. Paul's been writing about feeding your enemy, returning good for evil that's done to you. He says, even honor the IRS guy. It's hard to imagine that when he gets to the issue of love, he's going to start diminishing it and boundering it in. It's not what he's doing. I think the one another is any other with whom I come into contact with throughout the course of the week. That person who is my neighbor. Think of the conversation Jesus had in Matthew 22. He's talking with these individuals about paying Caesar taxes. He closes that conversation and they think, well, we didn't trip him up on that one. It says they actually marveled at his response. So they decide to try and trip him up on the law. So another lawyer shows up and says, so what's the greatest commandment? They think they can get him on that one. Jesus' response, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. The second, for extra credit, he lays out there, is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor, New Hope? I'm going to do this three times as we come into a landing on this passage with you, and I'm going to ask you this question, who is my neighbor? And this is the biblical response. Who is my neighbor, according to the Bible, is the one who is near me. The one who is near me, according to the Bible, is my neighbor. So when I do that with you, would you respond that way? And let's just practice once. Who is my neighbor, New Hope? The one, the one who's near me. It's not the person who owns real estate necessarily next to my house. It's actually, according to Scripture, people I come into contact with. So if you're new to New Hope, you need to know this. We love each other really well. We love those of the New Hope family. But Jesus teaches that we got to love more like the Samaritan loved. We'll come back to that. God extended his love to the whole world, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So we have this obligation to reach out both to believer and non-believer with the same measure of love. 
Let me give you two verses to back up what I'm talking about here. Here's one that represents a believer to believer first. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So he's obviously talking about the guys in the upper room, and he's reminding them, this is who you are, and this is how you're supposed to love each other, which is essentially saying, you, New Hope, have to love me whether you like me or not, right? Because it's a command from God, because you're stuck with me for eternity, right? And I'm stuck with you. We, we love each other, and then the world would know that we're his disciples. But the one another also applies to those who are not yet believers. Look with me on the screen. Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is such a radical. Nobody ever talks like that. Certainly before Jesus, nobody ever said that. And we think it's commonplace because it's in the Bible. Nobody ever speaks that way. Do you love the person who persecutes you? So we come back to the question, how do I love my neighbor? Who is my neighbor, New Hope? One who's near to me. How do I love that one well? Well, by far, the greatest and most important way to convey your love to your neighbor is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? I hope you need to hear that again. I hope you really want to hear that again so you drink it in. How do I love my neighbor well? The greatest, by far, the greatest measure of love to convey it is to point somebody to Jesus. What, what do these principles look like in my life? Well, I've got four things I want you to see before we go to the last verse. Let me put them on the screen for you. Here's four quick principles. You might want to write them down. They're not in your notes. You can just put them down yourself. To love as God is commanding here. You and I, first of all, have to submit to the Holy Spirit. Because in doing so, here's what you do. You, you come to the Father and say, I can't do this on my own. I need the strength of the Holy Spirit working through me. Why that way? Why that specifically? Because you and I have relationships with people whom we have bitterness with and whom we have pride issues with. And bitterness and pride get in the way. And that stops us from wanting to reach out to the person in the cubicle next to us. And it stands between us and reaching them with the gospel. So we submit to the Holy Spirit. Number two, our own godly love it actually encourages other believers to love. Did you know that? I love watching Michael interact with the youth band. You can tell he really loves these kids deeply. And then the youth ministry team, they love those kids. Who else would go up and sleep in a bunk bed up in a camp up in northern Michigan if you didn't love those kids? Right? They do, they love those kids. The people working downstairs as adults in children's ministry, they love those children. So we understand our own godly love, it encourages others to love. Watch with me on the screen, Hebrews 10, 24. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. It's not suggesting you just treat that subjectively and then throw it out of your mind. Actually think about it, God says. How do I stimulate people around me to love and to good deeds. Well, here's one. 
One of the best ways we have for inspiring others is Hebrews 10, 25, the next verse. Let us not forsake our own assembly together as is the habit of some. See, what that's saying is don't skip church, right? And the reason it's saying that is because when we're together and we hang out together, we watch each other interact and we see how people love on people. And it stimulates us. Here's a third one. Righteous love is reciprocal. And get your amens ready for this. We are only able to love because he first loved us, right? It's the truth of Scripture. God records that for us, 1 John 4, 19. He first loved us, so it's reciprocal. We love back. Here's the fourth and last one. Godly love is actually a matter of choice. You choose to act in godly ways and love a person. You choose to make that decision. You just wait for it to all of a sudden automatically spew out of you. You have to choose to take action because nothing less than voluntary love is pleasing to God. God knows when you're faking it. Here's the last couple verses, verse 9. Paul does something most extraordinary. He begins quoting the Ten Commandments. Verse 9, for this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he's making this logical connection here of how this debt of love shows up in your day. And he cites four of the Ten Commandments, four of the big ten. He draws these ones out. He says if these commitment, these, this commitment to love is fulfilled, the commandments are going to be fulfilled. Do you notice that he omits the first commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your might. He, he omits the first ones because if you don't have that part nailed down, you can't ever get to these ones, and he omits them because he's writing to believers. He's writing to the church in Rome. If you've got the relationship of love with God down, only then can you move on to this duty to your neighbor. So he throws out four examples, and one of them he uses is adultery. So let's just land on that one for 30 seconds. Adultery is actually the opposite of loving my neighbor because it's a failure to pay the debt of love. Let me show you what Dr. Barclay said about this. Dr. William Barclay wrote, when two people allow their physical passions to sweep them away, the reason is not that they love each other too much, but they love each other too little. In real love, there is at once respect and restraint which saves from sin. It's good. So the legal people are trying to trip Jesus up and trick him into standing against the authority, and they say to him, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, the greatest and first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and then for extra credit, he says, and the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor, New Hope? who's near me. If love is the inevitable response of a heart that's lined up with God, in really strong terms, Paul's saying in Romans 13, a believer loves the people they encounter at school, in the parking lot, in the coffee house, at work in the cubicle next to them, in their neighborhood, the person who's near them. 
The problem is it's, it's really easy to love people in an abstract way. Like, we love puppies. I love the puppies. But that's just words. Scripture actually says it's got to be measured out. God calls us to love people that we meet day by day with all their warts and with all their wrinkles. So pure love is actually manifested in action. And where love is real, you're going to see evidence of it. James writes about that. 1 Corinthians speaks about that. He says, if I don't actually have action, I'm just a clanging gong. James says, you, sure, you say you got faith? You sure about that? Because if you got faith, you're going to see some action going on there. And it goes both ways where biblical love is absent. Any claim to a relationship is fake. It's deception. So Paul makes it really, really personal when he goes to this last verse. And he says, love does no harm to its neighbor. Go with me on the screen, Romans 13, 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Laws of God, God puts authority in place. Rules are there for our good, God says. And the most forceful example, the most compelling illustration I see of this is what I'm going to end with. And it goes back to the tax conversation. When Jesus is approached by the governing authorities about paying a temple tax, Peter's right there with him. And he says to Peter, I'm God the Son, therefore I have no obligation to pay a tax on my own house. The temple is mine. It's God's house. But because I am Jesus the man, in the honor of the authority and as an example to all of my followers, Peter, give them the coin. Peter turns over the coin. The coin goes to the priest. And the priest gets it and takes it to the high priest. And the high priest puts it in the temple coffers. The same governing authority who only weeks later will nail him to a cross. Church, is Jesus Christ God the Son? As God the Son, God knows everything. God is omniscient. Did God know how that money was going to be used? That money goes into the treasury, the same treasury which they're going to reach in and pull out 30 pieces of silver from and pay Judas to betray Jesus. And knowing all of that, Jesus pays the tax without any hesitation because of pure godly love for his neighbor, the one who's near him. And he loves us with all of our blemishes. No matter what you've done in the past, no matter what you might do in the future, God says, you line up with me. You line up with me and that love is extended to you to such a degree that I will forgive you of your sins. So even when I was dead in my trespasses and sins, Christ Jesus paid the tax for his own betrayal. He's God the Son, he knows everything, and he knows he's given this money over to a corrupt government. And that corrupt government's going to put him on a cross, and they're going to use the Roman system to nail him. 
because God so loves the world, right? That he sent his one and only son. It's weighty, isn't it? It's complex, yet it's incredibly simple. I'm gonna pray that God would apply this to your life specifically the way that you've heard it today in the way that he pushed on your heart in the last 30 minutes. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I recognize that as many people as are in this auditorium and as are watching online right now are the unique in many ways in which you're pushing. If, if you can push us to take radar detectors out of our car, if you can push us to come to a complete stop at a red light, how much further can you push us to conform us to the image of Jesus? There's no limit to what you can do if we're surrendered to your word. And the evidence that you're working among us is the fact that we feel a sense of consciousness over these issues. So, Lord God, whatever you pushed on our hearts in the last 30 minutes, I pray that that would not easily escape and that we would not dismiss it, but rather that we would act on it, especially when it comes to the issue of loving our neighbor in the same way we love ourselves, because we know we don't want to go to hell, and we certainly don't want them to. So, Father, I pray that you would move us to action. Thank you for the boldness of our student ministry team who is willing to say they are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they stand on this stage making it loud and declare it for everybody to hear in a public setting. God, make that same thing true of us, that we would be known as people who love our neighbors well. We ask for this. We ask for this in the matchless name of the one who came to save us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.